Good evening, folks. Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to the Daily Evolver Live Tuesday Night Call. Tonight is Tuesday, April 22nd, 2014, and I am coming to you live from Boulder, Colorado. I'm here in my home with Brett Walker, who is handling the tech, and we're very happy to be with you. It's really so gratifying to be able to do this call once a week and to really look at what's arising in the world. I mean, if we really are evolving beings in an evolving world, an evolving cosmos, then we should be able to see that and see it in real time in politics and culture and economics and all of that good stuff. And, and we are seeing that and we, and we do see that. And I want to say a special shout out to Integral Life, which is the website that is the main really community center, virtual space, that is, for the integral movement. That's the home of Ken Wilber's archives and the latest work from him and a lot of great integral thinkers. So check out IntegralLife.com and also, of course, my blog, DailyEvolver.com. And I just want to make an announcement that this will be the last call I do for several weeks. I'm going to be doing some traveling. I'm going to go back home to see the folks back in western Pennsylvania later this week. And then off to Hungary a uh, week after that for the Integral European Conference, which I'm really excited about seeing. It's in Budapest, expecting uh, 300 people, and it should be a great event. So I'll be blogging from there, and I'll be posting. I just won't be doing the Tuesday night calls. After that, at the end of May, is the Integral Living Room, which is the event that I host here in Boulder at the Boulder Integral Center, with Diane Hamilton and Terry Patton and Ken Wilber. We'll all be there in person. And uh, it's basically the living room. I, I know some of you are aware of it and, and even join our calls that we do once a month for the virtual living room. But it's basically about people who are integrally informed getting together and hanging out for a weekend. And in this case, it's going to be Memorial Day weekend in the United States. I believe it's the 23rd through 26th. But that's IntegralLivingRoom.com if you're interested in joining us. It would be good to have you. As a matter of fact, the early bird runs out today. So if you're interested, jump on it. And you can have it, of course, the next couple of days if you need it. All right. I think that gets us to the subjects at hand for tonight. And I want to talk about two big subjects tonight. And I actually want to hear um, some of what you folks think on these topics, too. One is economics, and the other is the environment. And these are the world that we live in, I mean, literally in the case of the environment. But the economic environment is also really crucial to human beings. And of course, from an integral perspective, we can see that the economic environment that human beings have created has evolved up various stages of um, development, and it continues to evolve. And as always, I would encourage you, if you're interested in following along more theoretically with what I'm talking about, to go to the email that I sent to remind you of this call, and you'll see a link near the bottom of that email that will take you to a couple charts and graphs uh, on integral altitudes and the quadrants of um, reality. These are two of the basic pillars of aqual integral theory developed by Ken Wilber, who, of course, is the leading integral philosopher alive and probably of all time. So 
we do talk in terms of, you know, red and blue and uh, orange and green and all of these uh, lower left, lower right, uh, that sort of thing. I'll try to make it understandable whether or not you have the chart in front of you, but it can be helpful. All right, so uh, I want to start with a fairly short item, I think, about a book that has really gotten a lot of attention just in the last, really the last week, and certainly the last two weeks. And it's a book by a uh, French economist called Thomas Piketty, and it is currently number one on Amazon. It's 700 pages. He's doing a tour of the United States. Uh, it's just been translated into English and released. And uh, it's quite a blockbuster and really turns a lot of conservative economics on its head. His thesis is that the economic theory of trickle-down economics, that is, the idea that a rising tide lifts all boats, is not really backed by really centuries of data. And he's, his, Piketty is a, one of the great statisticians. He's well known for that. So this is a book of, I guess, endless charts and graphs. I haven't actually seen the book, and I want to take a look at it. I guess what's one of the great things about it is it's accessible for non-economists. But he makes a strong case that economic growth actually aggregates and concentrates in the higher income brackets. In other words, that the return on invested wealth, the return that rich people get on investing their money, over time exceeds the return on labor, or that is the amount of money that people get for working in the economy. And this is counter to just one of the basic premises of capitalism, which is that as uh, economies grow, that there is a great movement towards equality. And indeed, over the last century, we've seen a lot of that. Uh, what Piketty says, though, is that this is not so much a function of capitalism as it is a function of a depression and two great world wars, which basically caused the deconstruction of inherited wealth as he puts it, and that that trickled down and trickled through the economy. But once that new system is set up, the new economic system of capitalism is set up, then we have a natural sorting mechanism. And we've talked about that on this call a lot. The idea that, you know, is a CEO worth, I don't know, whatever it is, a thousand times more than an assembly line worker? And the answer is yes in terms of what a CEO can actually do for a company and how, you know, radically important it is to have somebody who is, you know, one of these, you know, Michael Jordans of, of, of management, these people who are just in a category of their own. And that that sort of thing, plus what we talked about last week, the sort of even the microsecond rigging of the stock market is, is, is exposed in Flash Boys by Michael Lewis, this high-speed trading just sort of warps by a half a cent every transaction, and that accrues to people who are doing that sort of thing, that uh, economy, uh, inequality will continue to rise. Uh, let me just read a couple paragraphs from what the New York Times wrote about Piketty's tour in the States. They said, since touching down in Washington this week to promote his new book, Capital in the 21st Century, 
Mr. Piketty has met with Treasury Secretary Jacob Liu, given a talk to President Obama's Council of Economic Advisors, lectured at the International Monetary Fund, and then flew to New York for an appearance at the United Nations, a sold-out public discussion with Nobel laureates Joseph Stiglitz and Paul Krugman, interviews with Harvard Business Review, New York Magazine, etc. And so he is definitely making an impact among the intelligentsia. From uh, an integral perspective, what I think this illustrates, and I'm really happy to see it, is that we can hopefully with this book, if it you know, lives up to its promise, will present essentially a green case. And as we've talked about on this call before, the economy is a lagging emergent in society. That is, you know, culture, as we said, culture moved into post-modernity in the 60s with beatniks and the Beatles and feminism and ecology and all of that stuff. But the economy was still very much in the amber stage or the traditional stage of development at that period where it was a certain egalitarianism. This is the, uh, as Piketty points out, the deconstruction of inherited wealth and the, you know, arising of modern economies, which did through labor unions and very, very progressive taxation. We had tax rates in the 80s and even gusting up to 90% in those days that there was a great equalizing until the Reagan administration, which was the dawning of the orange economy, where capitalism was basically largely deregulated, tax rates were cut, and this is where we set up this new system where invested wealth just over time exceeds working uh, income and causes the inequality, which Piketty estimates will grow much worse over the next couple decades unless some things are done. And what he's suggesting are, first of all, 80% tax rates again for high incomes, and then also, and this is something that's very radical, but it's probably inevitable. And he's talking about a global tax on wealth, that is, planetary tax on wealth, so that uh, people, when they're taxed, don't go to the Cayman Islands or leave the, you know, wherever they are. And of course, that's going to be politically very, very difficult to do, but less and less difficult as facts emerge. I mean, Human beings are uh, responsive to facts over time, especially as we continue to feel that sort of moral intuition. There's just something that isn't quite right with some people living so well and other people living, you know, really struggling to survive and feed themselves and their children. That's just not going to fly over time. We're seeing other radical ideas. There was a, a segment on PBS about a I don't know, a 15-minute segment last week on a referendum going on in Switzerland about something else we've, we've mentioned on this call before, and that is a guaranteed minimum income. That is, everybody in Switzerland, if this amendment goes through, I think it's a constitutional amendment, goes through, would get something like $34,000 a year, whether they work or not. Now, this would replace all other social welfare systems and, and so forth. And there are a lot of people on both sides of the spectrum. They interviewed them on the show, uh, on the left and the right, including the, you know, pretty often considered very far-right economist Charles Murray that argues that this is actually a very good idea. 
And that, yes, there would be some people, and this is an interesting moral dilemma that I think we're going to have to get our arms around. There are some people who really would choose not to work. This is sort of what they conservatives refer to as the moral hazard of a safety net, which, you know, if people's basic needs are met, will they work? And the answer to that is probably yes. Um, one of the people that they interviewed was David Graeber, who we talked about a couple weeks ago. He was the philosopher that works at MIT and the London School of Economics. And he was talking about basically the urge that people have to work. He was using the example of modern prisons. And in earlier prisons, if you were bad or disruptive or, you know, a difficult prisoner, you would have to work. You know, they'd send you out in a chain gang and you'd have to work. And in modern prisons, people uh, get rewarded by work. So getting able to work in the kitchen or the garden or a lot of prisons are doing things like dog training, that sort of thing, is actually a reward for people. And I think that's true. I think most people really, you know, we do have that procreant urge where we really want to express ourselves. And at some point, we're going to have to trust that, knowing that there are some people, and this is interesting to me too, is that there are some people, and I know a couple of them, who have a certain disability in life, and it's a disability not of intellect. They're very smart. In fact, very, very smart. I don't think of the two people I'm thinking of. They're very social. I mean, they're able to you know, carry on a conversation and, you know, be with people and they're funny and they're, you know, sensitive and they have wisdom and compassion and all of that good stuff, but they're lacking something very uh, crucial and that they're lacking a certain sense of volition or the ability to organize themselves or get up in the morning or do things and left to their own devices, they have a certain dissipation. And I just think, I oftentimes when I, I think of you know, culture at large, I, I think of the little town I grew up in that had about 600 people was the little coal mining town in western Pennsylvania. And I think of the streets that I grew up on and, and the people who lived there. And on every block, there was some mother living with her 40-year-old son who really didn't do much, you know, a 50-year-old. Uh, and that was, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that that's a very similar kind of thing. But for the most part, people got out and worked. They wanted to. So this is part of the, you know, what's the, the ideas that are moving us forward, These, this idea of global taxation, this idea of, again, very high progressive tax rates. And I know that drives conservatives crazy because the idea of a free market and laissez-faire capitalism is that everybody is free to make their fortune and they ought to be able to keep, you know, the vast majority of their fortune because, as we heard in the last election, presidential election here, Obama got in so much trouble with his comment that uh, when he talked about entrepreneurs, yes, they build companies and they create wealth and jobs and so forth, but they didn't build, as he got in trouble for saying, you didn't build this other piece, which is, from an integral perspective, the collective piece, that is the, the highways and the legal system and the police and the army and the civilization that exists so that people can make that kind of money. And that's, a, that's the commons. And the commons is a dimension of reality from, from an integral perspective. That's the two lower quadrants. And there's no reality without them. And so 
the idea is, yes, there's a substantial amount of, of money that somebody can make, but it's standing on a skyscraper, standing on the spectacular results of modernity and civilization that enables them to do that. So, you know, these, again, are radical ideas. I think they're cutting-edge ideas. I notice them uh, from an integral perspective. I think this is the move, this is or at least some of the move, economically into green. If you think that radical ideas can't get momentum, uh, I just invite you to think about gay marriage, uh, and where that was not only un... That, uh, 10 years ago, it was unthinkable, and 20 years ago, it would be been considered repulsive. And that's how fast things can move when uh, people see and feel into what's happening. So I'd like to encourage anybody who's got a comment or a question or, you know, if you want to just be heard on this subject, uh, to press 1. And uh, we'll uh, entertain some of your comments a little later in the call. I want to move to um, another topic that is, as I said, it's a big one. This is the, the environment. And this is always, you know, when we, when we look at, you know, where we might be going economically and the fact that, yes, we are just better and better at creating wealth and at recycling and doing it for less and doing it for more energy efficiently and that modernity is bringing billions of people out of poverty and that creating new middle classes, that's all good. But there's always that one cloud that is hanging in the horizon and that's this, so, you know, at what cost, especially to the environment? If we have everybody living at the standards of the West, and particularly Americans, uh, I think the latest predictions, are we, we would need five planets in order to do that. So does it even make sense to hope for economic growth for people? And this is, you know, of course, a green dilemma that is, is mostly alive in the green postmodern stage of development, but... That's where a lot of us are, and a lot of us are at least, you know, near waist deep in that ourselves. So I bring the topic up because, of course, the International Panel on Climate Change, the United Nations panel, has released another of its reports. In fact, it released three in the last few months. And I just want to read a little bit from the New York Times. They did an editorial on it yesterday and what this United Nations panel on climate change what their reports have to say. So New York Times writes, the IPCC, composed of thousands of the world's leading climate scientists, has issued three reports in the last seven months, each the product of six years of research. The first report simply confirmed what we've known since Rio, which was the conference in Rio de Janeiro, that global warming is caused largely by the burning of fossil fuels by human beings. That's the first report seven months ago. Second report, released in Japan three weeks ago, said that profound effects were already being felt around the world, including mounting damage to coral reefs, shrinking glaciers, and more persistent droughts, and warned of the worst to come, rising seas, species lost, and dwindling agricultural yields. And then the third report, released last week, may be the most ominous of the three. Despite investments in energy efficiency and cleaner energy sources in the United States, 
Europe, and in developing countries like China, annual emissions of greenhouse gases have risen almost twice as fast in the first decade of this century as they did in the last decades of the 20th century. And if that continues, the world will face truly alarming consequences. And they point out that avoiding that fate will require a reduction of between 70 and 40 and 70 percent in greenhouse gases by mid-century, which means uh, a marked revolution in the way we produce and consume energy. So that is the essence of the IPCC report. And there was a op-ed in the New York Times a couple days ago by Paul Krugman, where he was touting, you know, which is unlike him, a pretty positive message about the IPCC report and about what might be done to fix things. And it was under the title, Salvation Gets Cheap. And Paul Krugman writes, there's one piece of the assessment, the IPCC assessment, that is surprisingly, if conditionally, upbeat. It takes on the economics of mitigation. Even as the report calls for drastic action to limit emissions of greenhouse gases, it asserts that the economic impact of such drastic action would be surprisingly small. In fact, even under the most ambitious goals the assessment considers, the estimated reduction in economic growth of putting in positive alternative energy would basically amount to a rounding error or about 0.06% per year in growth. So what he's saying is that if we put in the required changes in the economy, uh, we'll only experience a less than 1% reduction in growth. He said, if that sounds like hyperbole, it isn't when you learn that the price of solar panels has fallen more than 75% since 2008, and that deployed wind power in the United States has the equivalent generation capacity of about 60 large nuclear reactors. And then he goes on to talk about the basically technological changes that are happening that could pull us out of this easier than any of us thought in terms of the cost. The problem, of course, is that there's a culture war going on about this. And there was a, an article I'm just going to point out a couple poll statistics uh, out of Forbes magazine, and they report on the Gallup poll of March 2014, so that's just last month, that Gallup showed that the majority of Americans continue to believe that the effects of global warming are happening or will begin to happen during their lifetime. More than 60% have given this response in every Gallup survey since the pollster first posed it in 1997. But here's the problem. Yet only a quarter and Gallup's polling said that they worry a great deal about it, compared to nearly 6 in 10 who worry about the economy and the deficit. And also, it isn't a top priority. And, and, and here's the statistic that really gets you between the eyes. It said in Pew Research Center poll, of 20 possible priorities for the President and Congress in 2014, dealing with global warming ranked, ranked second from last. So out of 20 priorities for the President and Congress, dealing with global warming ranks second from last. It's enough to make the green in you give up. So I wanted to point out another article that I found just fascinating, and it's about environmentalists who are doing just that, giving up. 
<laughs> and they, they feature a environmentalist in the New York Times Magazine from um, April 20th, so this last Sunday, just a couple days, two days ago, uh, New York Times Magazine, an article about Paul Kingsmith, I'm sorry, Kingsnorth, uh, who is a famous environmentalist, very, very strong, accomplished activist in England. And he's heading up the I Give Up movement, essentially. And, it, and it's interesting. <clears throat> I'll read a little bit about it because, to me, it sums up, first of all, what is in some ways pathological about green, but also wise and insightful about green, or this postmodern, uh, you know, pluralistic, environmentally conscious, feminist, uh, liberal, basically, the liberal stage of development in our country, which is what we call the green altitude. And also a move, I think, into integral uh, through the despair. And that's often how we move from one station to another, is through a certain dark night of the soul. And I think he may be leading us through this, and I think it's actually kind of healthy. But I was just going to read a couple quotes from him. He said, the human machine is uh, grown to such a size that breakdown is inevitable. And then what can we do? And so he founded what he calls the Dark Mountain Project in 2009. And as they write in the New York Times, it says, from the start, the Dark Mountain Project has been difficult to pin down, even for its members. If you ask a representative of the Sierra Club to describe his organization, he will say that it promotes responsible use of the Earth's resources. When you ask Kings North about Dark Mountain, he speaks of mourning, grief, and despair. We are living, he says, through the, quote, age of ecocide, unquote. And like a long-dazed widower, we are finally becoming sensible and sense, yeah, sensible to the magnitude of our loss, which is our duty to face. And it goes on to say, Kings North himself arrived at this point about six years ago, after nearly two decades of devoted activism. He said he felt like his long-standing faith in the environmental movement was draining away. He said, I had a lot of friends who were writing about climate change and doing a lot of good work on it. I was just listening and looking at the facts and thinking, wow, we're really screwed here. We're not going to stop this from happening. He said, everything has gotten worse. You look at every trend that environmentalists like me have been trying to stop for 50 years, and every single thing has gotten worse. And I think, I can't do this anymore. I can't sit here saying, yes, comrades, we must act. We only need one more push, and we'll save the world. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. So what do I do? And then the, they go on to write, the first thing that Kings North did was draft a manifesto, also called Uncivilization. It was an intense brooding document that vilified progress. There's a fall coming, he announced. After a quarter century of complacency in which we were invited to believe in bubbles that would never burst, prices that would never fall, hubris has been introduced to nemesis. In, in, in an interview, he said, Whenever I hear the word hope these days, I reach for my whiskey bottle. It seems to me to be such a futile thing. What does it mean? What are we hoping for? And why are we reduced to something so desperate that surely only hope 
is the thing that we do when we're powerless. Instead of trying to save the earth, Kings North says, people should start talking about what is actually possible. So much of his recent writing has been devoted to fulminating against how environmentalism in its crisis phase, so his fellow environmentalists in their crisis phase, draw adherence. He writes that movements like Bill McKibben's 350.org, for instance, might engage people, but they have no chance of stopping climate change. I just wish there was a way to be more honest about that, he went on, because actually what McKibben's doing, and while all these movements are doing, is selling people a false premise. They're saying, if we take these actions, we will be able to achieve this goal. And if you can't, and if you know that, then you're lying to people. And those people, they're going to feel despair. And so this is the sort of the money quote here at the end. And he writes, People think that abandoning belief in progress, abandoning the belief that if we try hard enough we can fix this mess, is a nihilistic position. They think we're saying, screw it, nothing matters. But in fact, what we're saying is, let's not pretend we're not feeling despair. Let's sit with it a while. Let's be honest with ourselves and with each other. And then, as our eyes adjust to the darkness, then what do we start to notice? And I love that part, uh, because that is, as I said, often the way forward is a certain kind of surrender. And as I pointed out, uh, you know, a lot of this is from the New York Times, which is, of course, a, it's a great, great newspaper, an indispensable newspaper, but they are, you know, pretty reliable, particularly in the editorials, liberal, and, of course, very much like most liberals, concerned about global warming. And this is, again, one of those things that are, is just so powerful in terms of uh, the structures and altitudes of development, is that... You know, I, I did a, a, a major talk on this, uh, I don't know, maybe six months ago called is, is Gaia Mad at Us? It's posted on my blog and on Integral Life. So I talk a lot about a lot of this in more detail there. But there is a move beyond this despair that comes up in green. You know, green is despairing at, at any rate because one of the ideas that green, one of the achievements of green is the realization that we can't be sure of anything, at least not in the way that we thought we could. And that all of the things like early religion, science, all of these brought us to you know, things like Hiroshima and concentration camps. And uh, there was a certain loss of innocence that science and rationality would save us. And so in the green stage of development, there's, you know, people are just pretty bummed out. And we see that in, uh, you know, when we talk to liberals, particularly about things like climate change. I, I, always, I love a quote from uh, John Stuart Mill, where he said, I have observed that not the man who hopes when others despair, but the man who despairs when, other hope, when others hope is admired by a large class of persons as a sage. And uh, Frederick Hayek said, implicit confidence in the beneficence of progress has come to be regarded as the sign of a shallow mind. And, you know, from, I think from an integral perspective, at least from the integral perspective I'm trying to inhabit, it's a little bit like what Clarice Graves said about one of the great things that 
uh, green brings online is a sensitivity to people who have been left behind, people who have been victims, uh, even animals, the environment, and so forth. And that we need to feel these things. We need to feel into the loss of the innocence of, you know, the human project so that we can be worthy of second tier. And that's why in some ways I find this Paul Kingsnorth's thesis to be bracing and a little bit cleansing. And I'm going to pay attention to him and see where he, he goes in the future. I think I'll just sort of pause there. I have more that I could talk about, particularly climate change and so forth. But I'd like to hear from you. I, and again, press one if you just want to pipe up for a minute or have a question or a comment or, you know, as we close up this last flight of these calls, I know there's a really a number of very wonderful, smart people on these calls. And I'm just interested in what you're thinking and what you have to say, uh, whether it's regarding some of the ideas that I just brought forth on the move into a green economy, or, you know, how we deal with this, this science around climate change and the hysteria around climate change and the human propensity to, you know, as, as Pierre Diamantis, I think, points out so eloquently in his book Abundance, the negativity bias that human beings operate by so that, again, it's almost the more pessimistic you are, the more comfortable. And there's probably something evolutionarily potent about that. Anyway, I see we have a comment from Jan. And Jan, what would you like to say? Is it me? Yes. Hi, Jan. Where are you from? Hi, it's Jan Marie, and I'm from Minneapolis. Oh, okay. I am, was brought to remember the groups 30 years ago in the 80s that were, working on, were looking at the situation of nuclear weapons with a lot of despair. And the psychologist Joanna Macy, who's also a Buddhist, who wrote a book called Despair to Empowerment, in hmm. which she um, looked at the phenomenon of as people go into despair, if they do it in some way together, um, so they're not totally isolated, so there were exercises that those of us working on anti-nuclear issues went through in order to really get in touch with that despair and go through it and to an empowered position yeah. with the recognition that the despair was because we are connected to everything. Right on. That's the deepest despair. And if you yeah. can get to that place um, without offing yourself, <laughs> you, mm -hmm. can, you can come through it in a way that the connectedness to everything then not only empowers you, but others as well, and gives you yeah. the strength and the, the whatever to go forward and do what you can. And then the Australian, John C., took her work and applied it to the wisdom of other living things on the planet and wrote something called the Council of All Beings, which were sort of um, Indian-based things where people would go out and ask for wisdom from other beings, from the plants, from the animals, and come back and share how those, what they knew about living on this planet that could help humans. 
get yeah. through things. So this all, all goes a little But I'm curious, especially because Joanna Macy is still doing work, but I'm not up on it, of how she, her um, work on the great turning, as she calls it now, I think, would coincide with Ken Wilber's perspective. And I'm not as familiar with that, but I know that he's also um, doing this Buddhist Mm-hmm. Turning conference. So, does anyone else know about that? And and what do you think about this idea of going through the despair, realizing the connection, and then being empowered to change the way we need to? Yeah, I think it's basically a paradigm for growth uh, and development in general. And we we know this even through basic developmental theory, is that people go, grow through these stages of development. And what is really necessary to move from one stage of development to another or altitude of development is that you just get completely disillusioned, (laughs) you know, by the stage that you're at. And so in green, and and I think that this Paul Kingsnorth is, you know, exemplar of this sort of, not just that global warming is out of control and we're not going to stop it and that sort of thing, but just the idea of progress in general as being a pernicious force. I mean, that was his background as he, you know, picketed against highways being built. And even the idea of anything like geoengineering or, you know, carbon sequestration or, you know, pumping silver oxide into the environment to cut the sun and these kinds of things. He talks about just how repellent they are to him. And that it's a distortion, as he says, of the proper relationship between humans and the natural world. And that, I think, I think that's a mistake. I, I do think that, uh, as one of my listeners, uh, Devin, uh, sent me a quote that I thought was so wonderful, uh, where he said that technology is a force of nature. And that one of the things, really, that we realize as we move into an integral stage of development is that we're not something other than natural, that we are actually the latest um, expression of evolution at its best. We are the most complex thing in the universe, the human mind is, as far as we know. And there's something that we can rely on in terms of, particularly as we see the trajectory of development towards greater complexity, greater compassion, bigger circles of caring, Uh, Actually, a lot of uh, environmental rectitude and reclamation. But there's, uh, I think the movement into that uh, requires a certain mourning of the innocence. It's almost like growing out of childhood. There's a certain magic that a lot of us feel the loss of. I mean, a lot of us have been through years of therapy because of that loss of magic that just is a natural part of development as we move out of childhood into teenage and, you know, generally into sort of an angst of that, an alienation and so forth, until from, uh, you know, the higher stages of development, when we move into integral stages, we actually bring that magic back. But it's a post-rational magic, not a pre-rational magic. And rational is a stage of evolution that is, you know, requires the loss of your religion, in in a sense. That's where science you know, basically collapses everything into the exteriors and explains how everything works and why nothing works. (laughs) So I do think that Joanna Macy, and I'm familiar with her work, and actually was present for one of her rituals where we 
uh, walked around in a circle and uh, grieved the nuclear winter and so forth. And it was a very powerful experience. It's one of the things that Peter Kingsnorth does is he has a group called Uncivilization and they go into the woods and they do these kinds of rituals. And I'll just read a couple sentences about uh, what they do. So um, uh, these people headed for the woods to a makeshift stage that had been blocked off with hay bales and covered by an enormous nylon parachute. There they danced, sang, laughed, barked, growled, hooted, mooed, bleated, and meowed, forming a kind of atavistic improvisatory choir. Deep into the night, you could hear them from your tent, shifting every few minutes from sound to sound, animal to animal, and mood to mood. And I've been in, you know, men's groups, go out in nature and do this kind of you know, ritual. And it's very, very powerful. And it has a lot of grief in it. I mean, that just seems to be part of the natural process of, um, of development. So thanks, Jan. Uh, really interesting stuff. I uh, see we have a comment from Steve. Steve, welcome. Yes, hi, Jeff. This is Steve in Sedona, Arizona, and uh, feeling the sense of despair and giving up about the whole climate thing. People I know just don't even want to talk about it or think about it because, and it gets to be kind of a collective thing. If you and I both give up driving our cars to re reduce our carbon footprint to zero, for example, that's not going to make one iota of difference. It's going to take... Yeah the whole planet, everyone, every nation, and how likely is that? So, yeah, yeah there's a, it, it would be like a major leap into second-tier consciousness globally. And how, what do yeah. you think? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that the key to a lot of this is just con actually continued development, particularly consciousness development. And as they pointed out in the article, the countries that are actually doing something about this, of course, the most developed countries, uh, Europe and the United States and Australia and Japan and so forth, but also China. And as countries move into even modernity, forget post-modernity, as they move into you know becoming consumers and having money and jobs and careers and move to the cities and all of that good stuff, then they want a basic level of cleanliness. No, nobody wants to wear masks out in the streets, which they do in Beijing regularly in other big cities in China. So that's what I often refer to as the environmental movement phase one. And that actually happened in the West in the 70s. Uh, in the United States, it was led by the great environmental liberal Richard Nixon, which surprises a lot of people, but he's the guy who did the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, Endangered Species um, and really just, you know, I remember growing up in uh, western Pennsylvania with the steel mills and coal mines and so forth. And when I lived for a couple of years in Youngstown, right out of college, Youngstown, Ohio, I had a basement apartment. And at 5 o'clock in the morning, every morning, I'd have to get up and, and close my bedroom window because that's when they let out the Coke ovens. These are the ovens in the steel mills that they use to... Um, process the steel or iron ore into steel. And there would be a three-foot cloud of heavy sulfur that would just be dispersed through the whole city. You could see it. You could walk, literally walk, and see your feet and knees sort of um, you know, kick it up. And it would pour into my windows. And that's over. When I moved to Colorado, 19, late 70s, there was a brown cloud in Colorado that's been largely cleaned up. 
Uh, we couldn't swim in Lake Erie when I was a kid. Now you can. Now you can fish. There's a certain cleanup that happened, and most people were on board for that. That's natural. That's going to go on in all of these countries as they develop you know, into that you know, orange modern stage of development. But then there's phase two of the environmental movement, which is the progressive environmental movement. And the problem with that movement is that it conflates itself with a certain anti-modernity. And, of course, every stage of development is polarized against the previous stage. So people move into post-modernity. They become liberal once they've had a belly full of modernity. Okay? So they have a belly full of consumerism and environmental degradation, and they actually become world-centric so that they can see things that um, people who aren't world-centric literally don't see. And that is that the planet itself is finite. And it's just like you can only befoul your local river so much before it becomes dead and a health hazard. And, you know, so people clean up their rivers, people clean up their own air, people clean up their own water. But this world-centric view that the whole system is finite uh, and that we have to move from a economic system of um, growth, which is, of course, is the mantra and the religion of the modern economy is growth, 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 to a model of sustainability, which is the a model of the green movement. Now, I think there's lots of reason to believe that we will technologically be able to do this and that eventually we'll be controlling, you know, maybe that's not the right word, but we'll be influencing the uh, climate of the planet as, as, as much as we're influencing the climate of our living room. I don't see any reason why that can't happen uh, as we become smarter and more capable. There's a lot of consternation to come around this, but I think there's plenty of, of reason to be, if, if Peter Kingsnorth will pardon the expression, to be hopeful. So thanks, Steve. Uh, let's uh, hear from Anne. Anne, welcome. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Where are you from, Anne? I'm from Paradise Valley in Montana. Oh, cool. So what's going on up there? <clears throat> well, you know, it's always a, a late spring. Um, I particularly responded to, to the comments on despair, um, and it was interesting to me because I went into a deep despair six years ago also and really found that to be the greatest liberation for me. I just recently came to the integral um, material and it makes so much sense and it's put you know, a huge amount of what I perceive into perspective. And what I observe about the green movement, and I haven't identified myself with it until I found integral because I, I didn't appreciate... Um, some of the modus operandi. And I, no. I'm a practitioner of the work of Byron Katie, and, and in the work, you never create an enemy. You just get really passionate about doing what you love. There are a lot of recovering environmentalists in doing the work now. Um, and so to me, I just see that, you know, going to the second and third tier is the solution to everything and we don't have to know what it's going to look like 
but if we want these environmental solutions to come forth, in my awareness, the inner work and and the compassion, even for the perceived enemies, is is of critical importance. Yeah, uh, beautifully put, Anne. Uh, thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, well said, Samuel. Welcome to the call. Hey, this is Samuel Nissenbaum from Mexico. Hey, Samuel. What I had the pleasure to talk to you recently, and thanks to you, I was able to be face to face with. Ken Wilber last week. Oh, I appreciate what you did for me. Jeff, I want to just mention that the fact that you are talking in uh, this call about capital in the 21st century and a new era of conscious capitalism is really a situation to rejoice about a new era in the history of of humanity. I just want to say that we are full of hope and each one should make his part to contribute to this conscious capitalism so that things are fair for everybody. Thank you, Jeff, again. Well, thank you, Samuel, and and good luck with your work in Mexico. Samuel is starting an integral center in Mexico. I met with Ken, as he said, I guess last week, and I'm very happy about that and uh, uh, look forward to hearing more from you, Samuel. Thank you. And let's take one more comment, and uh, and we'll close her up for the night. And uh, that's Julia. So, Julia, welcome. Hi. Um, I just wanted to quote my husband, who's, um, now deceased, and he was a nuclear physicist, and he also kind of specialized in in chaos theory and sp- spirituality. And uh, I wrote something down that he said once after coming home from a class entitled, "If it isn't a paradox, it isn't true." <laughs> um, okay, evolution occurs along the borders. Life evolves when there is enough novelty and enough order to provide for linear evolution. Generosity, not prejudicial preconceived ideas, opens up the border to bring a little more openness to the linear. The dark goddess is on the chaos side of things. So, and, you know, whenever there's extreme chaos, that, um, causes order it, it happens along the border and yeah, yeah. so um, the dark goddess yeah no I think that's uh, it's well said and that's uh, it's actually a spiritual dimension and that's why uh, we emphasize that integral really brings back online something that is lost in orange uh, and in even green and that is a real sense of the you know, enchantment of the cosmos, that the cosmos itself is alive, that it was burst into being 13.8 billion years ago, and that all along, you know, atoms had sex with molecules to make, with each other to make molecules, molecules connected with each other to make cells and make animals and beings and, and us. And there's something going on here. 
And we can take some comfort in that. I, I, I mentioned before that we just did a conference here in Boulder called The Fourth Turning, uh, which was exploring the future of Buddhism. And it talked about the three great movements of Buddhism, where we, in the first turning, we learn through self-observation and meditation that our identity is as big as the cosmos itself, and that we can actually rest in that awareness and that identity and see ourselves and everything really arising within this awareness. The, th the second turning is about seeing the emptiness of all reality and seeing that nothing is as solid as it seems and that all of form, basically everything, is shot through with the luminosity. And this is, moves into the third turning, that this basic emptiness of actual content and reality of actual material content, uh, gives rise to an enchanted, sacred luminosity that really permeates everything and everybody. And that as we continue to practice in various ways, we see this. And so I'd like to actually end the, this evening with a, a quick poem. It's about maybe a two-minute poem by one of my favorite poets, Wisława Szymborska, who won the Nobel Prize. She's a Polish poet, won the Nobel Prize in 1997. And I think this poem really captures this um, sense of evolution, uh, this sense of the things moving and taking shape, and also just this luminosity where everything is really its own thing and that it sparkles with its own selfness and suchness. And, you know, as we get into this kind of territory of understanding, oftentimes it's the poets who really capture the moment. So just relax for a moment, just lean back, and uh, I'll close with this poem. And, and the poem is <laughs> kind of amusingly entitled, No Title Required. So... From Wisława Samborska, No Title Required. She writes, It has come to this. I'm sitting under a tree beside a river on a sunny morning. It's an insignificant event and won't go down in history. And yet, I'm sitting by this river. That's a fact. And since I'm here, I must have come from somewhere. And before that, I must have turned up in many other places. Even a passing moment has its fertile past. It's Friday before Saturday. It's May before June. The tree beside me is a poplar. It's been rooted here for years. The river is the Rabba. It didn't spring up yesterday. The path leading through the bushes wasn't beaten last week. And the wind had to blow the clouds here before it could blow them away. Anniversaries and revolutions may roll around, but so do the oval pebbles in the bay. And I love this next verse. The tapestry of circumstance is intricate and dense. Let's say that again. The tapestry of circumstance is intricate and dense. 
Ants stitching in the grass. The grass sewn into the ground. The pattern of a wave being needled by a twig. And so it is that I am and I look. Above me, a white butterfly is fluttering through the air on wings that are its alone. And a shadow skims through my hands that is none other than itself, no one else's but its own. When I see such things, I'm no longer sure that what's important is more important than what's not. Mm, thank you, Wisława Simborska, Polish poet. And thank you all for joining me for this latest flight of the Daily Evolver. Uh, stay tuned to thedailyevolver.com where I'll be blogging on my travels and uh, also in Integral Life, which I'll be continue to post conversations and so forth. And I'll let you know when we resume these evening calls. And it is my dear pleasure to join you here. And uh, so thank you from Brett Walker and me. Have a great night, and we'll see you soon. Keep it integral, folks. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye.